So good evening, everybody. Uh, like all good presentations, we're going to start with a video just to make sure everybody's awake. So, uh, so let's uh, let's do that. So we're going to talk about the role of satellite in the digital, uh, digital society of tomorrow. And uh, I'm going to take you through three sections. I'll be roughly 40 minutes. Uh, and then we've got around 20 minutes for questions after that, I think. Uh, and I've got lots of colleagues from Inmarsat in the room. Uh, in case you ask uh, really detailed technical questions, I'll be deferring them all out to them. Uh, so uh, in, terms of, in terms of the uh, discussion, we're going to talk about three topics. The first one is... Uh, in, uh, in this world of hyperconnectivity, uh, where everybody's connected all the time, uh, why does the digital society need satellite at all? Um, so having established, uh, hopefully established a need, uh, we're, we're, going to, we're going to look at the technology and how we're innovating as an industry and as Inmarsat to meet that increased need. And then finally, uh, we're going to talk about the difference that this makes to the planet the difference we're making today and how we might expect that uh, to change tomorrow uh, as the industry evolves. So let's start with the first of those uh, and talk about why satellite. So the strategic context for that is that we're in an era of hyperconnectivity, uh, an expectation of uh, pretty much everybody under the age of 30 to be connected all the time, uh, to be continuously tweeting, connecting and streaming. And it's not just people, it's devices. Uh, it's an environment that's driven by smart machines uh, where uh, you've got billions of devices uh, being connected all the time, talking to each other all the time, uh, machine to machine and creating the Internet of Things. And it's driven by applications. And, uh, and in particular, what drives the need uh, for very large amounts of connectivity uh, is, the, is the desire of people to be, uh, be able to download data uh, and move data around between those applications at all times. So you're, talk, you're talking about uh, billions of data driving enormous, uh, billions of uh, devices dri uh, driving uh, billions of bits of data. Now, if you add all of that lot up, in terms of uh, the demand for data connectivity, uh, the demand for connectivity, data connectivity is growing so rapidly uh, that it's measured in extra bytes. 
Now, I had to look up what an extra byte is. Anybody happen to know? It's a billion, billion bytes. So it's a lot, and, uh, and it's growing at a phenomenal rate. Uh, in fact, a uh, compound annual growth rate of 53%. Uh, that's, uh, that's 75 extra bytes a month by the time we get to 2020. So if the, sum of, uh, the total sum of human knowledge today could be, could be stored in about 150 extra bytes. So you're talking about every month, or sorry, every two months, uh, doubling the sum of human knowledge in terms of the amount of information that's being stored. Absolutely phenomenal amounts of data. But terrestrial connectivity is increasingly capable, isn't it? So if a terrestrial connectivity is increasingly capable uh, and, and increasingly mobile, why do we need satellite? Well, the first of those reasons is that satellite provides you pervasive coverage. And if you noted on that uh, picture a moment ago of, uh, of terrestrial connectivity, you'll have seen that uh, there are large black holes all over the world still uh, and even today, we've got 4 billion people who are unconnected to that network, as well as uh, many tens of billions of more devices. And that's growing rapidly as the population grows. And one thing that I found really surprising uh, was it, the, the challenge of, uh, of the digital divide is getting worse, not better. And the driver behind that is the fact that as you move from 2G to 3G to 4G to 5G to whatever comes next, uh, the sizes of the cells are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and the base stations are getting more and more and more and more expensive. So what that means is if you live in a, uh, a place where there's high population density, your local mobile phone operator is rolling out your 5G base station, and you've got this fantastic data connectivity, and it's all marvelous. And for large swathes of the population, it's fantastic. But the distance away from those population centers that has that super-fast connectivity is dropping off faster and faster and faster as they go through the generations. And what that means is there's a gap as soon as you start to get away from the major population centers. And that's where satellite starts to get exciting because it offers consistent, universal, ubiquitous coverage. On land, that fills in the gaps. In the sea and in the air, it's the only form of connectivity you can have. And therefore, it's absolutely essential as, uh, to, to make a world uh, that is completely connected. The second big, uh, second big driver around satellite is the need for mission-critical reliability for some of what you're trying to do. Now, this is a small proportion of everything. Not everything that we do is mission-critical. Watching Netflix isn't the most important thing in the world. But if you're controlling a network or you're managing a ship or you're flying an airplane... Uh, you've got to have very, very, very high levels of availability. If you're an ambulance and you're going to a crisis, you can't deal with the fact that the cell site you're in might have been swamped. So what satellite can do is it can put additional capacity and additional power down and the ability to communicate wherever that hotspot might be, and it can allow you to achieve much, much higher levels of reliability if you blend it with terrestrial networks. That digital uh, economy increasingly is connecting infrastructure, critical national infrastructure, power grids, water, sewerage, uh, border security systems, uh, coast guard, all of, those, uh, all of those things are long-term major investments. 
And nobody wants to go out and change a power pylon every, every six months because the technology is rolled on. People want consistent technology that's going to work for a long time. If you manufacture a, uh, one of those really, really uh, large diggers, uh, the, uh, the, the big yellow caterpillar diggers, that's going, to la that's going to be around for 20 or 30 years. You want infrastructure that's going to allow you to track that over the long term. And satellite, which has very long capex cycles, meets those demands. We absolutely see that in our business today. We're still providing services that we launched 20 years ago because people are still using them and find it really difficult to move off them. Cyber is clearly absolutely fundamental to the digital economy. Uh, it's the greatest threat, it's the greatest vulnerability to, uh, to, to making all of this digital society work. And what's great about satellite networks is they're walled gardens. Satellite networks you can control uh, and you can, uh, you can use them as overlays to terrestrial networks that can otherwise be impacted. And they can give you a much quicker way to recover. And we're seeing an investment in cyber and security as fundamental in all the satellite businesses. And finally, what's unique about satellite is it can broadcast. So you can update many, many, many devices all around the planet in one go through a broadcast message. And you can track things with location services even when they're out of connectivity with, uh, even when they're out of connectivity with uh, terrestrial, uh, terrestrial means. And that's really exciting if, you've got, uh, if you're transporting something uh, from, uh, from China to London, uh, if you've got the right satellite technology as well as the right terrestrial technology, you can track exactly what's, where that container is all the way through from one end to the other. And not only that, you can track what's inside that container by device so you know exactly what's where at any time. And that can ma massively make differences to, uh, to the economics of moving things around the planet. So all of that adds up to a growing requirement and a diverse, uh, diversification of requirement for what satellites can do. And that's transforming our core customer needs, and it's also bringing new customers to the satellite market. All right, so that's why satellite. Um, the question then is, if, if, if you've got this explosion of different requirements, what are we doing and how are we innovating uh, from a technological perspective to meet that need? Well, from my perspective, there are, there are really five uh, critical technologies that are transforming the satellite business. Uh, and I'm just going to run through from left to right uh, or, uh, in terms of what they are and, ex and then go on to explain how that's really fundamentally changing the economics of the satellite market. So the first of those is a technology called high-throughput satellite. Um, anybody know what a high throughput satellite is? Very good. Uh, it's funny enough, a high throughput satellite is a satellite that has high throughput relative to a traditional architecture. And it achieves that absolutely right in the room uh, through uh, spectral, uh, spectral reuse, lots of small spot beams where you can, uh, you can reuse frequency and therefore get phenomenally more capacity through it. Uh, to give you an example of that, uh, the, um, uh, if, you, if you look at the comparison of the amount of military UHF spectrum in the world, uh, which is, uh, which is uh, generally uh, delivered using traditional uh, UHF capacity, uh, traditional types of satellites, and you compare that to our L-band network, which uses spectral reuse, 
uh, our, our, ability, our ability in the L-band spectrum is, is the ability to support thousands of users where they're talking about hundreds of users uh, within, the, within the traditional satellite architecture. So that's high throughput. Second one is moving up the frequency bands. As we've moved from C-band to KU-band to KA-band, we've had uh, two different effects kick in, really, really help us put more capacity in orbit. Uh, the first of those is, as you move up the frequency bands, the bands are much larger, and you can get a lot more channels, in any, uh, 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 a lot more channels onto a satellite. Uh, if you, uh, uh, the, but the second big advantage, as you move up the frequency bands, you can, you can get the satellites much closer together on the geostationary arc. So instead of, instead of six degrees plus of separation you need to have in the L-band spectrum, uh, at KA-band you can get down to two, uh, two degrees of spectra, uh, separation, and that means a lot more satellites on orbit to serve the planet. Makes a huge disru uh, uh, disruption in terms of the amount of capacity you can put up and out there. So the third one, uh, the third one is onboard digital processing and phased arrays. The, the combination of these two technologies are increasingly prevalent. And what they allow you to do is to use that spectrum uh, much more efficiently. Now, to give you, just, to, just to give you a flavor of that, if you compare our I-4 series of spacecraft, our Inmarsat 4 series of spacecraft, with our, with our next generation Inmarsat 6 uh, series, the Inmarsat 6 series has a lot more digital processing. Uh, and because of it, we can get three times the amount of uh, capacity out of those satellites with the same amount of spectrum. So... A, a, a significant multiplication factor on how much you can get out. Then the final two factors play together. Uh, the all-electric sa uh, satellite and reusable launches. Um, now, there's an apocryphal story, and I don't know whether it's true, and I'm sure somebody in this room does, uh, does know it's, whether it's true or not. But the idea, uh, the apocryphal story goes that the idea of the all-electric satellite became as a result of a satellite failure. So... Uh, the, uh, the satellite in question was launched, but it had a failure of its chemical stage that took it from a transfer orbit to a geostationary orbit. And uh, the clever engineers who didn't want to write off this $500 million satellite said, hold on a minute, I've got, uh, I've got ion thrusters, what I would know as a cathode ray tube if I understand the technology correctly, uh, that's normally used for, geostationary, uh, for, geo, for, for station keeping, just for nudging the satellite up and down, left and right, keep it in the right place in the geostationary orbit. But if I've got patience, and I'm prepared to wait six to nine months, I can use those cathode ray tubes to lift the satellite up into a geostationary orbit. And they tried it, and it worked. And having tried it and realized it worked, they then figured out that actually, if they're prepared to have a launch, uh, launch plan that includes that uh, six months or so of getting on station, you can get rid of the chemical phase. And that gives you two possibilities. One, uh, you uh, get rid of the, chemicals, uh, the chemical phase and you make the satellite a lot smaller, which means you can get it on much cheaper launches, which really reduces the price point. Or you can go the other way and you can cram a whole bunch more payload electronics into it and get a really, really powerful uh, uh, satellite uh, for the same volume or mass that you had before. Either way, you absolutely transform the economics. Then you multiply that again with the use of reu reusable launches. Reusable launches are really exciting for two reasons. Um, one, because they use production, type, production line type, type technology to, to, to create them, which makes them far cheaper than handmade spacecraft. Uh, and secondly, if you can reuse a launcher that's worth $100 million and you can reuse it 10 times, that becomes a $10 million launcher. 
Now, put a bit, uh, put a bit of uh, reuse cost and all the rest of it, you're talking about a very significant change in the cost to get on orbit. Uh, we had our first, uh, first ride on one of Elon Musk's uh, SpaceX spacecraft uh, last year, uh, out from the Cape. Um, first time I've seen a Cape launch. Uh, beautiful to watch. Absolutely beautiful to watch. But what was even more exciting than that, uh, for me, was just getting to talk to the team uh, that uh, put that spacecraft together. And the way that they are driving the edge of technology with every flight is really impressive. They're just pushing the boundaries on every mission. And that's, uh, that's playing out to uh, transform the economics of launch. So they're the key disruptors. What does that all mean? Well, what it means is a material change to uh, the cost of a satellite and what you can do, about, do with it. So if you take the example of, uh, of uh, using, using the space up rather than, uh, rather than making the satellite cheaper, um, you start to get something that looks a bit like this. The numbers are very approximate. They're just to give you a flavor. But a, a, a traditional designer spacecraft uh, with a conventional architecture might have cost you about $350 million. And you'd have got about 16 gigabits of capacity through that. Uh, the mass behind this is all a bit approximate, so, uh, so, uh, so don't check, check my mass, but you'll get the flavor. If you go to a high-throughput architecture, uh, you, you start to use uh, some of those phase array techniques and digital processing, you're starting to get to the point of getting up to 150 uh, gigabits, but what's important is the price hasn't changed very much. So, so, so the impact on cost per bit or cost per megahertz is very significant. Now, if you go forward in time, as, uh, uh, as, as our expert, uh, thank goodness because he's on the committee, pointed out, we're talking about getting towards a terabit spacecraft very, very soon. Again, for a similar sort of cost. And the net effect of all that, of course, uh, is to drive down cost. Now, that's not the only bit of innovation that's going. The other bit of innovation that's going that we're all talking about is the LEO networks. Uh, now, last time, last, time, uh, last time I checked... Uh, the team's tracking about uh, my, uh, the team in Imarsat tracks about 28 of these different Leo networks that people are trying to make happen. So 28 different businesses trying to launch a Leo network and uh, and uh, create a business out of it. Most of those Leo networks are focused at uh, providing domestic internet, so they're not really in the core space of of our business, uh, which is mission critical mobility. Um, but, they're certain, but what they are doing is transforming uh, the technologies and the economics behind the whole industry. And that's actually giving us all a big bump. It's giving us all a big benefit. Um, if you talk to the financial analysts they, uh, in, the, in, in the markets, they reckon one to two of these networks will be successful. You know, maybe, maybe they're going to be a little bit uh, uh, better than that. Maybe it's three. Uh, and I think, I think it's reasonable to expect... Uh, some of the big operators, like in Marsat and uh, 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 SES and Utilsat, um, they're probably going to take one of these that doesn't quite make it and probably pick it up and leverage off the back of the technology because someone's going to pay, pay for all of that investment. We might as well leverage it. Um, regardless of whether one network is successful or two or three, adding these LEO networks is going to really add a lot more capacity uh, in, uh, up on orbit and that's really going to help in terms of the available amount of data to support the applications that people need uh, from domestic internet through to the mission-critical stuff that we do. So what is that all doing to what's available and how much it costs? 
Well, if you go back to 2012, there's about 300 megabits in total on orbit across all the satellites that were, uh, that were in play across all the frequency bands. Now, if you roll that forward, you can see, start to see how it's really racking up. So by 2020, if I take data from Northern Skies Research, you end up at about 27 terabits of total capacity on orbit. That is a profound difference. Now, what's the impact of that? Well, the impact of that is clearly not only a lot more to do a lot more things with, but it's also a very significant reduction in price. We've seen an 80% reduction in the cost per meg over the last five years. 80% reduction. So, you know, what used to, uh, so what used to cost you, uh, what used to cost you uh, four now cost you one. Uh, very, 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 very significant difference in terms of how much it costs to do things over satellite. And that's already opening up lots of opportunities and markets that weren't available or affordable before. But if you roll that forward, we're talking about, over the next five years, an expectation for maybe another ten times reduction in cost. So that means you're going to either go for very, very cheap satellite, if you're a very small device and you don't need lots of connectivity, or lots of bandwidth at a very affordable price. A complete change in the economics of the downstream applications associated with these services. Imosat has uh, been a disruptor through uh, all of this story. And, and, it's, uh, and it's a great advert for the UK space industry. Um, Imosat, as you know, is uh, a UK operator based out of uh, Old Street Roundabout. If anybody, any of you uh, ever wants to come and visit, the uh, Satellite Operations Centre is very cool, very worth visiting. Um, but we also buy a lot of UK technology, particularly from Airbus, uh, who's, both, who's our, biggest, uh, our biggest supplier uh, and also one of our biggest customers. So uh, uh, if you look through the constellations, uh, right back in 2005, we started to use high-throughput satellites. So really at the bleeding edge of the use of that, uh, of that uh, spectral reuse type technology. And then in 2013, uh, we kind of went a little bit further with AlphaSat and putting a lot more processing, uh, processing technology sitting behind that for a very complex spacecraft. Roll into 14, and we started to build the first of our high-throughput KA band uh, uh, satellites. Uh, GX1 went up in 2014, and over the next couple of years, we, we, we launched two more to give us global coverage and global capability of a high-throughput uh, satellite network, which we blended with our L-band. Now, what the, great the great thing for, you, uh, for Inmarsat uh, is that L-band remains a very relevant frequency if you want robust communications. L-band is a really robust frequency band. So we blend the L-band with a high-throughput KA band to give, uh, to give a service that is both mission-critical and high-throughput. First three GXs are up in, uh, up in sky. It's a very, it's a very successful program. Uh, the, uh, it's rolling out in terms of uh, users, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, uh, giving you some examples shortly. Um, but we've carried on augmenting. And one of the things you'll notice is these dates are getting closer and closer. And what's happening is, because of that demand explosion, instead of waiting for a satellite to end, to come to its end of life, 20-year lifespan, we're now overbuilding our networks. Satellites on satellites on satellites in order to meet the total demand. And what, what's great about that is instead of being frozen in the economics of the satellite you bought, you built a satellite, the economics stayed the same for 20 years, and then 20 years later, the, uh, the economics shifted down in a big square wave. What we were able to do is blend these, uh, these uh, fleets of satellites to bring the blended cost per bit down. 
and that's making huge differences to what you're actually seeing in the market and what people can afford. So in 2017, it was an exciting year. Uh, I just talked about the fact that we, uh, uh, we launched our uh, fourth GX in the, in the Cape, uh, but we also launched uh, uh, Inmarsat S spacecraft. Now, that's, uh, that's a radical uh, transformation or diversion for Inmarsat because it's part of our first hybrid network, of, uh, which, it, which is an air-to-ground network. So that's specifically to address the aviation market. Uh, the uh, antennas on the top of, the spa- uh, top of an aircraft communicate to that S-band satellite, but antennas on the bottom of the aircraft can also talk to a ground network. And that allows us to meet that explosive demand for, uh, for consumer connectivity for aeroplanes, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Roll forward to 2019. Uh, 2019, we're going to launch another uh, GX satellite, GX5, that's a very high-throughput satellite architecture, basically all of the stuff we just talked about on steroids, um, to really add a lot more capacity uh, in the EMEA region, just to meet demand. And then in 20, 2020, 2021, we're going to launch two more very high-power, uh, very complex spacecraft uh, to, uh, to augment our L-band constellation and put even more capacity into KA. So let me just give you a kind of two ends of the envelope, uh, or t- the two benchmarks of technology. Um, uh, GXF5 spacecraft is uh, being built for us by TALIS. Uh, it's a very high-throughput architecture, uh, and it's targeted for launch in 2019. What's interesting about that is it's a, it's a very high-throughput spacecraft, but look at the price point. Compared to those normal $500 million spacecraft, this thing's very affordable because it's gone down the smaller end of what's possible. And that's going to give us all that capacity in the Middle East, Europe, and in the Indian subcontinent. At the other end of, of that envelope of what's possible is in Marsat 6, which is a super complicated, absolutely state-of-the-art spacecraft uh, uh, doing both L and KA. Uh, built for us by uh, uh, Airbus Defence and Space, this is our opportunity to really push the boundaries of what the UK can do. Really, really exciting programme. So we don't just innovate on, uh, in, uh, in space, we're also innovating on the ground by collaborating with technology providers um, uh, on different terminal equipments. So I'm just going to show you three just to give you an illustration uh, of what that looks like. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a flat panel antenna we call the Swarm Terminal. Uh, it's a terminal you can take anywhere on the planet. It'll give you tens of megabits of capacity uh, wherever, uh, wherever, wherever you are, and it fits into a backpack. Transformational kind of capability for, uh, for militaries, but also for disaster relief and emergencies. Uh, this is a program I'm particularly proud of. Uh, if you see the big bump on the back of this in the middle, uh, this is uh, the Royal Australian Air Force's uh, latest C-130. And what we've done is put a, a pipe that can give them uh, between 10 and 20 megabits of capacity uh, into an aeroplane and, uh, and megabits of capacity off the aeroplane and they can fly that, uh, fly that anywhere on the planet and get a completely consistent universal service. So we've had this up in the air with an Air Vice Marshal in the back running a video conference between his command headquarters uh, with, uh, with, a, with the state house uh, whilst in the air on a mission. Uh, we've used this to do real-time streaming of uh, the, the, the dropping of, uh, uh, of the Christmas parcels on Easter Island. Uh, and uh, this very first aircraft, this is the very first craft that have that's fitted, has one big problem. 
And the big problem is it's being run into the ground because it's the only aircraft anybody wants to take because when you've had a connected aircraft, why would you want an unconnected one? So we're busy rolling this out across the Australian fleet right now, and it's a fundamental part of their new strategy to have every asset connected all the time everywhere. And then this is completely the other end of the spectrum. This is uh, the, what we call the lunchbox. So it's a little terminal. It's about the size of a lunchbox, which is why we call it a lunchbox, uh, officially known as the Aviator, U, uh, uh, Aviator 200 UAV from Cobham. Um, and uh, this is on our L-band network, and it allows uh, communications with real-time video uh, uh, to very, very small UAVs. Uh, that UAV uh, is... Uh, that, uh, that, you were totally sure about cockpit space is about that big. Total, total UAV probably from here to the uh, uh, wingspan, probably from here to that table. So small, very, very affordable UAVs. Now, there's a video on here, so I'm not sure it's going to run. No, it's not. So can I just ask you if you just click on, uh, click on the screen? It should play you a video if I'm lucky. There we go. Oh, we're going to be lucky. There we go. So you start to get an idea. It's a very small UAV. This is the actual imagery that, that was done uh, over the satellite. Um, and uh, yes, it's jerky, but look at the quality. So that's going across a link that's only 100 kilobits. Now, we're using very, very clever software to allow you to get that kind of image, uh, that kind of image quality off a, uh, off a UAV. But we can deploy that beyond line of sight, uh, both controlling the, controlling the UAV and pulling imagery off with, such, with a really, really small antenna. So lots and lots of other uh, uh, innovation. Imosat spends about $600 million a year on uh, new, uh, new technology and innovation. So if you compare that to the amount of money that, for example, that governments can spend in, uh, in space uh, R&D, you can see how it's really driving the industry out, comes from the, technology, from the uh, commercial side rather than from government investment. <coughs> all right, so, so what? What does all that mean in terms of the difference that that means that we can make in the market? Um, well, let's start with shipping. Uh, Inmarsat's biggest market, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's about half of Inmarsat's revenue, is about connecting to ships. And what we're seeing in the shipping market is a transformation from smart ships to smart fleets uh, to complete smart shipping industry. What's driving that? Well, it's about the fact that these huge container ships or oil tankers are, are actually floating computer systems. They, they've got thousands of sensors with thousands of monitoring points that allows them to be controlled and managed very, very, uh, very, very efficiently. Um, it produces enormous amounts of data, uh, and vast amounts of that data is being trans uh, uh, transmitted autonomously uh, around the world back to the MERSC headquarters where they manage the fleet in an optimal way. The net effect of that today is that Maersk are saving millions of dollars in terms of how much they're burning in terms of fuel. That's commercially very important, but it's also great for the planet because these things burn a lot of uh, bulk diesel fuel, which is not very, not very environmentally friendly. So, so pretty good for the environment, very, very good economically. Now that's, that's what's happening now. Where are we going? Well, we're already working on uh, studies with Rolls-Royce and, with the, big, uh, and with, the, with the big operators uh, on completely autonomous ships. The autonomous ships uh, are, sh are not ships that are uh, driven by computer. They're actually driven by people 
But the bridge of those ships is at, are actually sitting back in the home port. So if you walk into the bridge, of the, uh, these, and these, these, this technology exists today, and then it's the experimental stage, but you can walk onto one of these bridges, and it looks like you're actually sitting on the ship. Exactly the same, complete situational awareness in terms of video, all the sensors, everything, but actually you're sitting in Rotterdam. Why is that exciting? Well, it's really exciting uh, for me in terms of two dynamics. One, um, it means that the crews get to go home at night. Now, that's great for quality of living if you're in the shipping industry, but it also transforms how much you have to pay a crew to do something like that. Completely different. Um, the other dynamic is you, you actually get a massive security benefit because it's very, very hard for a pirate crew to come on and take one of those ships because actually from, from Rotterdam, the crew just turns the switch off, the ship becomes a brick, and, you just set, you, uh, and then you just go and send the Navy in to go sort them out. Really, really safe and secure way of managing shipping. So transformational change to our industry, and that's coming really soon. I was shocked that the first, they reckon the first of those, 2020 20, 21, completely unmanned ship. There might be a guy doing the painting. Um, same kind of technology is going on in aircraft. Um, exactly the same idea, shifting from smart aircraft to smart airlines to smart aviation. Uh, again, uh, taking all those digital sensors on an airplane and leveraging that to create a far more reliable, far more cost-effective aircraft. A lot less time on the ground means that the economics of the airline becomes much more attractive. Now, that's aircraft in terms of the platform, and we're seeing that both in the commercial industry and in the military side. Um, but the, the really big market, the big explosion that's transforming what's going on in the user domain is in flight connectivity. Um, the projection is that by 2025, we'll have 5 billion connected passengers in the air uh, using satellite to connect. 5 billion. Um, the revenue opportunity of that is enormous. Um, potentially, uh, we're talking about uh, a, a, an industry, even in the early 2020s, that could double or triple the size of our business, as in Marsat. So absolutely transformational market. Uh, Inmosat's doing really well in that space. Uh, we're one of two market leaders today, uh, and it, it's getting a lot of focus because it's growing like crazy. What's driving it to grow, grow like crazy uh, is, uh, is the fact that every airline in the world, bar none, now has a connectivity strategy, and every airline in the world is, uh, is going through an acquisition cycle to select its operator. So by the time we get to 2020, that, all of that's going to play out. Why is that happening? Well, that's happening because uh, in a recent survey uh, that we did across, uh, across uh, uh, thousands of airline passengers, we were amazed to find that 50% of passengers would rather have uh, Wi-Fi connectivity than they would an in-flight meal. Now, I'm not voting that way myself, but... Uh, uh, but it just shows, particularly when you're looking at a youth audience, for a youth audience, it is more important to be connected than just about anything else. I have had the experience of flying back on an unconnected aeroplane when my colleague was on a connected aeroplane. And uh, has anybody ever done that? Done a parallel flight with somebody who was on a connected aeroplane whilst you were on an unconnected one? It is one of the most painful experiences you can possibly imagine. Because it goes like this. You get on the plane, you think, I've got 12 hours, and this is I was flying back from Sydney, 
12 hours of glorious peace and quiet. I had all my emails stacked on my, uh, on my hard drive, and I don't know how you guys are, but that feeling of getting to zero in your inbox is one of life's great pleasures. And so for the first seven hours of this flight, I had a couple of glasses of wine, and I plowed through my email. I cleared it all, and, 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 and I then worked on a paper. And, and by the time I landed... Uh, in, um, in, that ca- in that case, I was flying back through, uh, through Dubai. By the time I landed in Dubai and redocked my machine, I had completely cleared everything and I'd written this beautiful piece of work. I hadn't slept, but I was, I was looking forward to a nice sleep on the next part of the flight. And, uh, and, um, and I was very proud of myself until I read the inbound box. And unfortunately, my VP of sales, my vice president of sales, had been on a connected aeroplane. Uh, and the whole world had moved three times since I had taken off, everything that I had done was completely wasted. Completely wasted. All of that work, seven hours, absolute waste of time. That frustration feeling that you have at that point says, I'm, as, a, as, a, uh, as a business traveler, I'm going to try really, really hard to choose to be on a connected airplane. Now, airlines make their money from business travelers. So if, <clears throat> if your business traveler is even thinking about switching from one airline to the other because he's either connected or he's not... This becomes a big deal. And that's why every, uh, every aircraft company in the uh, aviation business in the world, uh, every airline in the world, has, an, has a connectivity strategy. And that's why this is so important. So really transforming our industry. Um, my day job is defense and security. I run the, uh, I run the government business. Uh, again, we're seeing all the same themes of going from smart troops to smart squads to smart, smart missions because of that ability to, uh, to, connect, uh, to connect devices, to connect people in secure ways uh, and to take it down to a level that was never possible before. You can come up with whole new ways of operating as a, as a security force or as a first responder if you can provide this level of guaranteed connectivity. Uh, and, it can, uh, and, it, and it's transforming the world and changing the market. I won't go into the details, but feel free to grab me afterwards if you want to know more of what's going on in that space. Same dynamic in energy. Exactly the same dynamic in energy. Very smart, very, uh, uh, very complex. Uh, drilling platforms producing terabits of data. Again, being connected through these, uh, through these dynamics and transforming the industry. And almost finally, transport. Today... Uh, we're providing satellite connectivity to rail, uh, run, running, uh, running across continents. Uh, we're connecting uh, the, that big, heavy industrial plant uh, to satellites so we know where it is and we can maintain it and actually people can provide power by the hour, even into bulldozers and diggers. Uh, and uh, not yet, but soon, we'll be into connected cars. Connected cars is a fascinating market um, uh, over two-thirds of new cars will be connected by 2025. And if, you, if you've read any of the stuff or watched any of the stuff on Tesla, which I find uh, really, really fascinating, you'll see how the models of autonomous cars are going to completely change the way we think about transport, completely change the world. But uh, those cars need to be connected. They're safety-critical systems that, that are going to be taking you home and you don't want, that, uh, you don't want that, uh, that car to have out-of-date software or to have a cyber corruption bug in it. So providing connectivity to that is, is a great opportunity not only for terrestrial but also for satellite. So a little bit, little bit of time for that to come, but I think, again, that's going to be the next big wave after, uh, after aviation. 
And then finally, uh, smart ecosystems. Uh, <clears throat> the whole raft of secure infrastructure across government uh, is an opportunity for satellite. And to, uh, to, rather than me going through the details of that, I thought I would pick uh, one story, uh, which is uh, the work that we're doing in Rwanda around uh, 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 smart agriculture. We're doing some... some uh, Rwanda is a, a fascinating place. I can bore you with over coffee. Uh, but it's driving a lot of the thinking across... Uh, uh, the, uh, the, um, the information systems thinking across the whole of Africa. And it's a huge opportunity, Africa. Um, so, so we're working with uh, President Kagame, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the president of Rwanda, on a series of initiatives to use satellite technology to change what's possible. And let me just give you one example of that in farming. Africa is changing rapidly. Urbanization is a major challenge on the continent. And Rwanda is at the center of the continent and also at the center of the ICT strategy to enable its citizens to be smart and to create a smart economy. There's huge excitement around the youth and the students and entrepreneurs around connectivity and the smart internet of things. And it's really exciting at the moment to be part of the initiatives. One of the projects Simosat has been working with is supporting the Mosquique project. And Rosine was an immediate vibrant, driven, passionate person that we got behind to solve uh, smart irrigation problems with uh, small and uh, medium-sized cooperatives. This involves measuring precisely how much water to apply at the right time, and uh, Razine is building the application environment to enable that. The IMASAT team, they're sharing us information about sensors, satellites, and how we can use our technologies into solutions on ground by going together on the field or teaching us different programming activities. That's helpful to us. The individual sensors themselves will include things like soil moisture sensors, leaf wetness sensors, and nutrient sensors. So we're providing Rosine and her development team the building blocks from which they can develop on. So the, the data will move from a sensor to a LoRaWAN base station through the BGAN satellite network into the Imosat Think Park environment. From then it will go into an application that will then uh, manage all the data and the insights around it. It might correlate weather data together with soil data and then automatically actuate on the irrigation system to turn on sprinklers. Irrigation will help our farmers to increase their productivity through the use of, of their land all the time in all seasons. They use to grow crops in season B only. In Rwanda we have three seasons. Uh, we have two seasons for agriculture and one only for sun season where people can't cultivate without using irrigation. Imasat can work with us to help him improve the yield production. He has many crops. The help from us and Imasat will be helpful because having those sensors, having programming, having the, the irrigation, it will be like combining our energies as three. We intend coaching her through different, different ways from a technical and a commercial perspective and creating a, a blueprint that enables not only one particular crop with multiple crops, but also allows it to be scaled to many countries. 
and I'm very excited about the opportunities that it presents and we're really looking forward to making a difference in Kigali and the African continent. Um, that's a very cool program. It's, uh, it's very cool because uh, it's, it's young Africans, and she, she is awesome, by the way. If you get to talk to her, she is amazing. Uh, it, it's uh, getting young Africans using very, very cheap technology to transform yield of farms. Actually, all it is uh, is a set, of, a set of little sensors that works out when the crop needs, uh, needs a little, little valve opening up that lets water out of a, uh, water out of a dam. <coughs> that simple. What sits behind it is a whole bunch of really clever analytics uh, and computing power that they can control, uh, they can manage centrally uh, in Kigali, which is actually a very modern city, that can figure out exactly when all, when's all the rainfall coming, what's, what, what's, what's the, how, much, uh, how much moisture is in the, in the soil, and they can let out water in a very, very economic way so you can transform production. You can get two, three, four, five times the amount of uh, crop growth out of this farm with these really, really cheap little sensors. And that means this thing scales. And that's why it's, that's why it's such a cool project. And what we're loving about that is we're not, provide, we're not figuring that whole thing out. We're just, we're just giving people building blocks to allow them to think about how they can solve difficult problems. And that's really cool, because you can think about how that scales. So great program, great example of satellite. So let me just finish. We're just kind of trying to summarize. Um, the satellite industry is going through profound change at the moment. It's a really interesting time. Lots of challenges. But if you look over the next uh, five and the next ten years, uh, we're seeing an explosion of new uh, demand uh, with new, uh, uh, new opportunities. And the, uh, what, that's, uh, what that's allowing us to do uh, is to take the industry into whole new places we never thought, thought of before. Uh, and it's, uh, as a result, it's a really, really interesting time to be in our industry. So for this room, that should be, uh, should be a reason to get excited. So it's going to be interesting. Thanks very much. <laughs>